In 2007, there was a study by a psychologist professor at the University of Arizona. The study was published in the scientific journal <clears throat> called Science. Very interesting study. They gathered 396 college students there at the University of Arizona, 210 women, <clears throat> and 186 men. Each person was then outfitted with a recorder that automatically recorded 30 seconds of their activity every 12.5 minutes, which amounts to about 5% of their day. The aim of the study was to basically see how much we talk. Here were the results. On average, women in this study spoke 16,215 words per day. The men, 15,670. Statistically, there was no difference. So the first thing this study did was dispel the myth that women talk more than men. They were both roughly at 16,000 words per day. And get this, the three most talkative of the 396 students coming in at 47,000 words a day were all men. I've got a son that could keep up with them, I assure you. The quietest in the study, coming in at 700 words a day, also a man. Now, other research, independent from this study and at a different time, revealed that most people, on average, speak a minimum of 7,000 words a day. 7,000 words a day. Now, with all of those words, how easy is it to sin? 47,000 47, words? How many times were those words sinful? This is why Proverbs ten nineteen says this. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who is wise restrains his lips. That's Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. It's easy to sin with one word, right? You think of the defiant toddler saying, no! Or you think of the curse word spoken in anger. This is why we say, very truthfully, that words are a window to the heart. Words are a snapshot of the soul. They reveal what's going on within. Words disclose things. Words expose. Words divulge the realities within. Our experience says this is true, and Jesus says this is true. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. For our text this morning, as we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, Passages verse 33 to 37, and the title of the sermon this morning is Revealing Words. Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. 
But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are looking now at the words of Jesus. And I pray you give us ears to hear and a heart to believe and a will willing to change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's the text. Brings us to the text idea this morning. And again, I want you to be able to see it and hear it. When the Pharisees rejected Jesus and blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that's the context, he warned them that their words revealed their evil hearts and would be evidence against them on the day of judgment. That brings us to the sermon idea this morning. The big idea of the sermon is this. This passage, and I'm going to add a word, primarily warns unbelievers that their words reveal their true nature and will be used against them on the day of judgment. This passage primarily warns unbelievers that their words reveal their true nature and will be used against them on the day of judgment. So my purpose today primarily is to warn those who might be here or might be listening now or later, if they are unregenerate, if they're non-Christians, if they're unbelievers, I want to warn them that all of their words will be part of the judgment that God will have of their life. I want to warn them in such a way that they, the unbeliever, the non-Christian this morning, seeks God's forgiveness for your sinful words. That's really the goal of this sermon, is that those who are outside of Christ, those who will face judgment for every single word that comes out of their mouth, will today be awakened to that dreadful and sobering reality. And because of that, will seek God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Now, secondarily, my purpose today is to remind believers that our words matter, to remind believers that we too will have a judgment, and we'll talk about that more later. And surely, we must assume that at our judgment as believers, our words will be part of that evaluation. And so we want to be reminded today how important our speech is to God. We begin then with the three illustrations that show us this truth, that words reveal the heart. Jesus gives us three illustrations to show us that. Illustration number one is verse 33. The tree is known by its fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. A very simple, basic illustration. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for or because the tree is known, is revealed, is manifested by its fruit. Now, verse 33 is actually very difficult to interpret. If you look at it, and if you think about it for a moment, what is Jesus saying here? Because it comes across as a command. On the surface, it's like, you're the tree, make yourself good or make yourself bad. And all of a sudden, that runs into conflict with the rest of the Bible, right? I mean, did Jesus forget the gospel all of a sudden? <laughs> did he forget that this is impossible for us to make ourselves good? Did he forget that we're evil by nature and we can't change ourselves? Of course he didn't. So it creates an interpretation challenge of what you thought at the surface was an easy verse. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. This has led to different translations of this verse as, the, as translators wrestle with what this might mean. Here's the NIV. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. 
Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. How do I know that's an apple tree? Well, I know because now I see there are apples on it. Versus the peach tree. I might not be able to tell them apart until I see the fruit they produce. The New Living Translation goes this route. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. That's how they translate verse 33. Some commentators even change make to consider or think. In other words, Jesus is saying make in this sense. Consider it in your mind. Think about it in your mind. Think that the good tree will have good fruit and consider that the bad tree will have bad fruit. Okay, that's getting a little easier to, to process. Some people even comment, commentating on this said that Jesus is contrasting himself with the Pharisees. That Jesus is basically saying, I'm a good tree and I bear good fruit. And you Pharisees who just blaspheme the Holy Spirit and charge me with casting out demons by the power of Satan, you Pharisees are bad trees and that's an example of your bad fruit. And that has some merit as well. So it's a very complicated verse, but what is clear about the verse, right? Let's see what is crystal clear. As fruit identifies the tree as healthy or rotten, words identify the heart as good or evil. That's the crystal clear truth of verse 33. Let me say it again. As fruit identifies whether that tree is a healthy tree or that tree is rotting from the inside out, our words that come out of our mouth, identify whether the heart is good or the heart is evil. In other words, words reveal. Now, turn back to Matthew 7 for some confirmation of this because Jesus has talked like this before already in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their, what? Fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. It's an assertion. It's a statement. It's reality. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So this first illustration is very simple. You are a tree. Your words are your fruit. Your fruit gives you away. Second illustration. The evil heart is known by its venom. Now you'll notice verse 33 has a positive and a negative. And verse 35 will have a positive and a negative. But, but, but verse 34 is all negative. And so I went that direction with my point here. The evil heart <clears throat> is known by its venom. Look at verse 34. You brood of vipers. Now remember the context. He's still responding to the Pharisees. He's still responding to their charge in verse 24. It started in verse 25 and it will go to verse 37. And so he's addressing these religious men, these moral men, these supposedly godly men, these men who were held in high esteem by their culture, who were given great power in Judaism, and he calls them to their face a brood of vipers, offspring of serpents. How can you 
being evil. Uh, there's two words that, that underline total depravity. There's two words that show us the nature of every human being apart from Christ. You're in a state of being evil. How can you speak what is good? Rhetorical question. They can't. If they were to answer honestly, they would say, we can't. It is impossible for us to speak what is good because we're, we're evil. And Jesus confirms this, verse 34, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, that which overflows the heart, out of the abundance of the heart. So the evil heart is known by its venom. So it turns out that these Pharisees are really worse than bad trees with bad fruit, aren't they? They're actually a nest of venomous vipers. A nest of venomous vipers. They are the offspring, we might say, of the serpent himself. Jesus would say that to them in John. He would say to these same men on another occasion, you are of your father, the devil. So they're worse than bad trees. They're venomous snakes. The word of God confirms this in a couple of places. Let's go look at Romans chapter 3 for a moment. As we see confirmation of Paul and then James will bear witness to this reality. In Romans chapter 3 verse 10. Paul quoting from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Useless. Underline that. Remember that. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Well, how do we know? What's the evidence? What proves that? Look at verse 13. Speech proves it. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp a terribly poisonous snake, is under their lips, hiding there. They're deadly, they're deceiving, they're damning. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is what the evil heart is capable of. This is what the lost person inevitably falls into in one form or another because the mouth is simply the overflow of the heart. And look at James chapter 3, which we've read, but I want to go back and see that verse one more time. James 3, verse 8. James 3 and verse 8 says, But no one can tame the tongue. Isn't that ironic? We can tame Shamu, the killer well. We can tame parrots. We can tame chickens. We can tame all kinds of things, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. The worst of men, given their full vent of their evilness, remind me of the most toxic, most venomous snake on the planet. It's called the inland or western typhon, also known as the fierce snake. One bite can deliver 110 milligrams of poison. It's found in central Australia. One bite from the fierce snake has enough poison to kill a hundred people. That is a very apt picture of the worst of men given over to damaging speech. Did you know that there are actually three categories of venom, of venom 
And scientists have studied poisonous snakes and their bites, and a lot of this is fairly recent information. They have categorized their venom into three different places, categories, based on the effect that it has on the human body. The first category, the venom attacks the blood. It lowers your blood pressure and causes your blood to clot. The second category of poisonous snake, the poison disrupts your brain and attacks your nervous system. And the third category is it attacks living tissue and kills it, leading to a need for amputation. And I think to myself, how is that so much like us, like the human race, with our venomous words, but falling into different categories of effects? One person's words might be flirtatious in the category of temptation to lust and immorality. And another person's words may be to materialism in the category of tempting someone to greed and and accumulation of goods. Our words can be words of slander or gossip or hate or malice, all kinds of categories for our evil speech depending on the effect that they have on the person hearing them. Just like the serpent population on the planet. The point here is words reveal the heart. The heart apart from Christ is evil. And so out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the evil heart is known by its venom. Now the example, of course, is verse 24. Let's look at it. Let's look at the deadly words of verse 24, the damning words, the deceptive words of the Pharisees. When they heard about this amazing miracle that Jesus performed, and the people were wondering if he is the Messiah, and they say in verse 24, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That's hurtful, it's damaging, it's deceptive, it's misleading. It's careless. That was a careless word they spoke. And that's exactly what Jesus has in mind here in our passage. Why would they say such a thing about the Son of God? Why would they say such a thing about the Lamb of God? About this man who does nothing but good and speaks truth? What would cause them to do that? Well, it's simple. They are bad trees. They are a brood of vipers. And the treasure of their heart is evil. This is a careless charge. And this charge, verse 24, Jesus is telling them, will be used against you in the day of judgment. You're going to hear those words again someday. And you won't like the outcome. So that's the second illustration. The third illustration is verse 35. The man is known by his treasure. The man is known by his treasure. Look at verse 35. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And I believe here Jesus is using the word treasure as a synonym for heart, for the heart. The good man brings out of his good heart what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil heart what is evil. We may think of it this way. So hospitality was a big deal in this time right? Someone came to your house, it was crucially important that you treated them with the utmost in hospitality, even if they were a stranger. And so imagine this, a a guest come to a a first century Jewish man's house, and he's going to bring out of his pantry, which would be his treasure in this case, he's going to bring out of his pantry that which is good. Now, if he is a good man, and he has out-of-town guests traveling through, he's going to bring out of his pantry his very best, 
He's going to serve them the best meat, the best fruit, the best vegetables. Whatever he has on hand, they will get the absolute best he has because he's a good man. And he brings out of his good treasure, out of his good storage house, that which would be a blessing to others. But if he's a bad man, if he's an evil man, a greedy man, a stingy man, he's going to go into the pantry and he's going to find the stuff they're about to throw out, right? He's going to find the moldy bread and the dried up meat and the stale whatever to serve this guest, to get them out of there as quickly as possible, to show them the least amount of care and concern because he's a bad man bringing out of his bad pantry that which is bad. Or here's another illustration, more uh, maybe to modern times. Imagine someone comes uh, to your house and you have a treasure chest of keepsakes and you've you've met this person or they're a friend and you've got this, this treasure that you want to show them, that you want to entertain them with. And in this treasure chest, you're going to have things that are valuable, some things that are rare, and you may just have things that are just sentimental to you, that only have value to you. But this person is a friend, and you want to show them uh, these things out of your treasure. So the good person will bring out good treasure to display. The point being this, if the guest comes to your house and you show them your treasures, you're showing them what you value. You show them what you have worth, what you put worth in. And that's what Jesus is describing. Excuse me. He is describing that very activity. Revealing to us once again that the man is known by his treasure. Or, to say it another way, words reveal the heart. So three illustrations, very simple, to make the same point. So what's the big deal? What's the big hairy deal? Verse 36 and 37 is the big deal. Now that we've illustrated this truth three different ways, let's get to the whole point of this passage. Let's get to the so what of this passage. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So let's break this down and make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. First of all, we have to define the word careless, verse 36. It literally means unemployed. Every unemployed word, every lazy word, idle word, useless word, worthless word, an irresponsible word. See, that's what the Pharisees have done. They've spoken an idle, lazy, useless, worthless word. They hadn't even thought it through, right? He exposed the fallacy of their logic last week. We saw that. They didn't even think through the implications of what they're saying. It was so useless. Every one of these words that people speak, you'll give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. You know what else would apply here? The holy talk and the God talk of the unregenerate. Again, we're focused here primarily on the unbeliever, on the unregenerate, the non-Christian And Jesus is saying, non-Christian, every single word that comes out of your mouth that is sinful in any way, you will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. And that can even include holy talk, God talk, lost preacher. Your platitudes from the pulpit will be used against you in the day of judgment. Right? You uh, overly religious, unregenerate churchgoer, your God talk 
Your hypocrisy will be used against you in the day of judgment. Accounting is the next word we need to define. This means you'll give a report for it, a defense of it, a justification. All of these words, some people speaking 47,000 a day, all of these words. Now, at the day of judgment, I've got to, I've got to explain that. I've got to defend that. What did you mean by that? Why did you say that? A day of judgment and an accounting. The third thing we need to define and identify is what day of judgment is Jesus talking about? There's really three choices. There's three judgments. They don't happen at the same time. The first judgment is the Bema seat judgment of believers. So this is interesting. The first judgment is believers only. The second judgment is believers and unbelievers. And the third judgment is unbelievers only. Okay, so the first judgment is the Bema seat, and that's what happens to Christians, believers only, after the rapture of the church. We'll talk about that more in a few more minutes. The middle judgment is the judgment at the second coming of Christ when he comes back all the way to the earth and he separates the sheep from the goats. And I believe that is the judgment Jesus speaks of here. And the third one is the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom, and that's unbelievers only. Now, at the great white throne, this judgment may be repeated. I'm not sure how that will work. But I believe that Jesus here, in the context of the Gospel of Matthew, is talking about the second coming judgment. He's talking about the separation of the sheep from the goats before the kingdom comes on the planet. Now, let me support that. Let's go back to chapter 10, where Jesus has used these words before already in verse 15. And I want to show you a few verses before our verse and a few verses after our verse to identify this judgment. In 10.15, he says, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment, there it is, than for that city. Or chapter 11 and verse 22. Same idea. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. These are specific cities in the land of Israel. It will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for you. Verse 24. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. All right, those are all verses before our verse. Now let's go to a verse after ours, chapter 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So what judgment is he talking about? It's in chapter 25. Turn to 25 and verse 31. This is the judgment Jesus has in mind. 25, verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. He will sit on His glorious throne. That's the throne of David. That's the throne of judgment on this earth, in Jerusalem. Not the throne He currently sits upon at God's right hand. Verse 32, all the nations, so it's Jews and Gentiles now, it's believers and unbelievers, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he, 
Jesus Christ will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. That is the judgment Jesus has in mind here in chapter 12. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Not only do we have all those verses to support it, but we also have this. There's no clear reference in the Gospel of Matthew to the Bema Seat judgment. And there's no clear reference in the Gospel of Matthew to the Great White Throne judgment. And so you put all that together, and I think it's clear. So let me describe to you what, what's going on then. Where are we in, in, in prophetic history? This judgment, this second coming judgment, the church has already been raptured. There's already been seven years of tribulation on the earth, and the tribulation is over. Christ has returned from heaven in his second coming, and tribulation survivors... Physical survivors of the tribulation will then face their day of judgment to see who enters the millennial kingdom and who is banished from the millennial kingdom. And so when you look at verse 37 and he says, by your words you will be justified, what he is saying is, by your words you will be acquitted. So justified means acquitted means you're in. Condemned means guilty means you're out. Okay? That's what verse 37 is telling us. Not because, listen carefully, our words are the basis or the source of our justification. They're not. It's because our words are irrefutable evidence of whether justification has taken place or not. Our words are irrefutable evidence of whether we have a new heart or not. They're irrefutable evidence of whether we've been converted or not. Whether we're a disciple or not. Whether we have a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees or not. Right? Our words reveal this. They will be the overwhelming evidence for the unbeliever then at this judgment going into the kingdom. Every unbeliever then, by extension, from this particular judgment, whether it's here or the great white throne, every unbeliever will give an account, not only for their blasphemous words, right? Not only for blaspheming God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable forgivable sin. They will give an account for every worthless word, for every useless word, for every otherwise sinful word, all of them, all of them. They will be used as evidence against them in this courtroom, in this exercise of justice. For example, for example, imagine the scene. The unbelievers lined up now, hearing back all of these words their entire life. Imagine the scene. Bragging is an evidence of what? Pride. Bragging or boasting reveals pride. See, I'm just going to give you some illustrations of how this evidence, how our words reveal the heart. Sarcasm reveals what? A root of bitterness, perhaps. Flirty words, suggestive words, reveal a heart of lust. Complaining reveals coveting. Grumbling reveals discontentment. Grumbling reveals a lack of trust in God. Slander reveals malice, hate, envy. Excessive talking reveals what? Selfishness. Selfishness. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And then the old adage comes along, you have two ears and one mouth, use them accordingly. 
You can't learn anything while you're talking. And so excessive talking, even if it doesn't seem like it's sinful, can reveal a heart of selfishness. What does talking back to parents reveal? Reveals a defiant heart. Reveals rebellion against God. It reveals perhaps even hate in that child's heart toward God, toward God's authority, toward their parent that God has placed in their life. Talking back to parents all of a sudden is not some minor infraction. It's not minor at all. When you start considering that God has ordained who my parents would be, young people, and they represent God in your life. They are God's agent of authority and discipline for you to protect you from evil if they're Christians. And so to talk back to your parent is to talk back to God because he is the one who is behind them. And so our words reveal the heart. It reveals the heart. So if you're a non-Christian here today, if you're an unregenerate person If you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, following him, loving him, serving him, trusting him, growing in your faith, you have a massive problem that only Jesus can solve. Only Jesus ultimately can perfectly pass this test. Amen? Is there anyone who can stand at this kind of standard, this kind of standard and get an A plus? Jesus could. All right, that's the first thing. Second thing is, only his blood can wash away this many sins. I mean, there's nothing easier to sin, no easier way to sin than with our words, except maybe our thoughts. Right? So very easy. So there is a massive problem. Every careless word will be judged, but there is a massive solution. Jesus died for every careless word. And Jesus paid this penalty too. Praise the Lord. I am so very glad this morning that my sinful words will not be evidence against me that will damn me for eternity. I am very happy this morning that all of my sinful words have already been forgiven. (laughs) Hallelujah. They're already, the slate is already wiped clean. I'm very happy today that I will not have to give an account for my careless words, listen carefully, with the risk of eternal condemnation. There is no risk of condemnation for me because of Romans 8.1. I am so happy today because of Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, so we got to deal with this. If you're here today and you haven't, you haven't come to terms with, you thought all along, well, it's just going to be my deeds. You know, and I haven't murdered anybody. And I haven't stolen anything really big anyway. And, and I, I, didn't commit a, I haven't committed adultery, well, at least not physically. And so you're, you're feeling like you're in pretty decent shape because your deeds are, are okay in your own eyes. Well, I've got news for you. It's not just going to be your deeds. It's going to be your words, all of them. And I don't think you want to face that, that kind of accountability. I really don't. I think if you are listening right now, that you're going to think, I need to seek forgiveness. I need to seek Christ to cleanse my filthy mouth and to cleanse me of all of the sin that's come between my lips. And then you can join the happiness of Romans 8.1. 
Now, for us who are believers, I think we have to assume, I've alluded to it already, there are these three judgments, Bema Seat, Second Coming Judgment, and Great White Throne. We will not be at the Great White Throne Judgment being judged. That's already been settled. Uh, unless we're survivors of the tribulation, we're not going to be judged uh, in, in going into the kingdom. That's already been settled. So we go back to the Bema Seat, where Jesus Christ judges us after the rapture. And I think it is safe for us, just by way of application, we must assume that our words will be part of this judgment based on this text. Now, this is not the focus of the text, right? But I think we can assume from this text that our words will be included along with our works. They're very parallel. Our works reveal our faith and our words reveal our faith. In fact, you might even say that our words are part of our works, right? I mean, they're a part of, if you've got a speaking gift, everything you say using your speaking gift is part of your works, and so they overlap. And so I think we must assume that when we get to the Bema Seat and we are evaluated not as to our salvation, but as to our rewards. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to stand before the Lord and give an accounting for everything we've done and said. Here's the good news. As a believer... It starts at your conversion, okay? And then we give an accounting for everything since our conversion up until our death. And within that frame of reference, the accounting has nothing to do with whether you're going to heaven, whether you're saved, whether you're forgiven, whether you're justified. The accounting has everything to do with reward or no reward. And so we must take this to heart that this will apply to us in that sense. Our words then, even at the Bema seat, will reveal our justification. These, our words will reveal that we had a heart change. This is the good news. The good news of the gospel, the good news to you Christians here this morning, is you can have good words. You can speak that which is good and wholesome and healthy because you have a good heart. Believer, you have a new heart. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. You've been transformed from within. And so by the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, we can be this good man with good fruit and this good treasure of these two verses. We can and we will. You see, if you're justified, there's going to be evidence of that at this judgment. Just like there's evidence on the other side that condemns. And so when we stand before the Lord that day, our words, by our words, we will be acquitted in that sense. By our words, we will give evidence that we have been declared righteous and have been born again. So with that in mind, I close with these thoughts for us as believers. May our words be meaningful, fruitful, purposeful, useful. May our words be responsible and true and and thoughtful. May we speak clearly, concisely, decisively. May our yes be yes and our no be no. May no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but only such a word is good in the moment. And may we pray, Lord, set a guard over our mouths and keep watch over the door of our lips, as the psalmist prayed. May we as Christians, as followers of the pure one, put away filthiness, put away silly talk, put away coarse jesting, and replace those with the giving of thanks. May our soft answers turn away wrath. 
May we fill our hearts with the love of God and the love of each other and the love of neighbor because that which fills the heart proceeds from the mouth. And very practically, let me give you four things to work into your vocabulary more often. May we say these four things from the heart more often. Thank you. Please. I love you. And praise the Lord. Just make those four things more meaningful, regular part of the words that come out of your mouth because they're in your heart, because there's humility there and gratefulness there and thankfulness there and love there and worship there. Those things being real in the heart, may we say more often, thank you, please, I love you, praise the Lord. Please, will you? Okay. (laughs) For by your words you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, living, active, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a scalpel, Lord, that cuts us deeply. It is a mirror that shows us our behavior. Father, we pray this morning for the unbeliever who might be among us, the unregenerate, that they would come to terms with the sobering reality of of this passage and we pray lord for all of us who are believers following christ that we would be mindful today of what comes out of our mouth our speech that we would be purposeful we would think about what we say and how we say it and why we say it realizing that uh, ultimately though we got to deal with our hearts we got to shepherd our own hearts we got to counsel our own hearts because that which fills the heart comes out of the mouth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.